The information in this broadcast is for educational purposes only and is not provided as a professional service, medical advice, or is it intended or implied to be a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. You are encouraged to confirm any information obtained from this broadcast with other sources and review all information regarding any medical condition or treatment with your physician and other appropriate healthcare providers. Hi, I'm Pete Levine. Welcome to Noggins and Neurons, Stroke and TBI Recovery Simplified. I'm a clinical instructor and clinical researcher. I've co-authored dozens of scientific journal articles about brain injury recovery, and I'm also the author of the book, Stronger After Stroke. I'm Deborah Battistella, occupational therapist, creator of the OT's Guide to Mirror Therapy, and an OT educator. I have a lot of experience working with survivors. Most of my clinical practice has been in a certified stroke center. Pete and I are especially interested in talking about what rehab, neuroscience, and clinical research all have to say about the brain and recovery. But don't worry, our job is to make this stuff simple. We're here to make it so that everyone, clinicians, clinical students, caregivers, and most importantly, the survivor, understands what it takes to leverage the great neuroplastic brain for recovery. So hyperacute, acute, subacute, and chronic, those are the four phases. The way that you tell it's time to start is look for subacute, spontaneous recovery. And then once they plateau, after that, you're not waiting for this easy ride of the brain coming back online. It's all neuroplastic change after that. You've got to borrow from some other part of the brain that's still intact. And so then it becomes real learning. Hi, Deb Stella. How are you? I'm Pete Levine. I'm great. How are you? So this is our first official episode. We did a pre-episode and we had all kinds of bloopers and it was a lot of fun and we talked about ourselves probably in a way that was way too in- intimate, but <laughs> this is too much information, but this is uh, the first real episode and the overarching theme here, I think you would agree is something called learn non-use, which is extraordinarily important to this whole discussion of recovery from brain injury. And when you first suggested it, I thought, oh, that's great because I've done lots and lots of talks on it and I've written about it and this will be easy. And then I went, oh no, it's, it's so complex and there's so many tentacles and there's so many interesting personalities Mm -hmm. from, you know, Edward Taub, the guy who coined the phrase right up to Sir Charles Sherrington and, um, and many others. And there's a whole historical arc and there were monkeys that were uh, uh, put into stress and there were, it went to the halls of Congress and it was like, it's a big, big subject. And I used to do like an hour, an hour and a half on Edward Taub. I think we should do a whole hour on Edward Taub one day. I think we um, should too, because he, I feel like I know him. Well, I used to, because that was my research when I was getting my master's degree. So I feel like I read pretty much every article he wrote for a long time. Okay. Yeah. So this can go off the rails really quickly <laughs> because I, in our, our introductory episode, we talked about making things simple. So in case people are trying to get out of their car to buy their bagels or pick up their kids or something, 
do you mind if I just go ahead and try to define learn on use as simply as I can and get that out of the way? And then we can get as complicated as you want. Okay, good. That'd be great. Okay, so um, it was a term coined by Edward Taub, and it's based in who, by the way, Ed Taub, I'm already going back on my word. He is a uh, neuropsychologist, also known as a neuroscientist, but he was grandfathered into it. Uh, Neuroscience as a discipline didn't start until probably the early 90s. So he was trained as a psychologist. And I like that you can call him Ed. Did I call him Ed? You did. <laughs> I probably shouldn't do that. I've got a few emails from him, and um, I've almost fainted with every email. Um, his lab and our lab were at loggerheads, unfortunately, for a while, oh. because one of the things we want to talk about today is how to undo this bad thing, learn non-use, using constraint-induced therapy. And I'm, I know you know this, but our lab was the first to modify constraint-induced therapy in the uh, in the late 90s, early aughts. And so while his lab was trying to get Medicare coding, Medicaid coding for full-on constraint-induced therapy, we sort of kneecapped him by coming up with this modified protocol that was a lot easier to get paid for. But be that as it may, let me get back to learn non-use. So everybody knows that the first rule of the brain is use it or lose it. Learn non-use is use it or lose it manifest in people with brain injury. So he started Ed Taub, Edward Taub, PhD, started this uh, with monkeys, and he would basically give them a forelimb, uh, where our upper extremity, their forelimbs, um, that was insensate. He did what you might recognize as a dorsal root rhizotomy. Basically, they cut the inputs. So the monkey could move it, but couldn't feel it. He then noticed that they wouldn't move it. Why? Because, you know, it's the old OT joke. I don't need that arm. I got another one. You can't do that with the legs, but with the arms, you can kind of get away with that. So basically, the monkey couldn't feel it. And every time it tried to move that extremity, um, even if it was their dominant extremity, uh, it wasn't successful. And so it got this sort of operant conditioning thing, this BF Skinner and Taub was very influenced by BF Skinner. So you would get this negative reinforcer every time you tried to use this limb that you couldn't feel. At the same time, you're getting positive reinforcement by using the limb that you could feel and that worked great. Now, fast forward of a decade or so, he started working with stroke survivors. And basically with a stroke, you have a strong side and a weak side. Okay. So if you use your strong side, everything works great. If you use your weak side, you drop things, you burn yourself, you break things. It's uncoordinated. You can't feel where your limb is in space. We call it proprioception. You have poor proprioception. You have poor tactile sensation. But not only that, in humans, it's even worse than in monkeys. Because in humans, if you drop something, you get embarrassed. And if you bump into something, you get embarrassed. So there's this whole social element to it as well. So what stroke survivors learn very quickly is that if they use the good side, everything is awesome. And if they use the bad side, everything sucks. Now, that's the behavioral aspect. What's happening in the brain is that that portion of the brain dedicated to that 
affected, that weak extremity starts to shrink. Neuroscientists call it a pruning of the dendritic arbor. The neurons are still there, but they prune away. They start to not talk to each other. And that just spirals throughout the person's life. And from there, we can go into a massive discussion about this stuff, but it's use it or lose it manifest in somebody who has a stroke. It does show up in people who have other forms of acquired brain injury. And I know that's something we want to define, but you know, if you have a strong side and a weak side, heck, if you have a dominant side and a non-dominant side, I'm very right-handed. I mean, good luck with my left hand. Although I do play guitar. So my left hand has some coordination from, from that part of it, but you know, we see this even in dominant, non-dominant people. We tend to ignore the non-dominant side. So what do you, what do you think? Maybe what do you think about that as it manifests on the OT side of things? Oh, I have so many things I want to talk about right now. Short answer or the quick answer to that is it negatively impacts a person's function in a great way. And we live in a two-handed world. Life is easier when you can use two hands, two arms. And the more the learned non-use is fed, the greater the challenge in the recovery process, like you mentioned before. I think also on the OT end, the reason I wanted to talk about this is because I want people who work with stroke and brain injured clients to understand that it's, it's a thing. It's a real thing. And there are some things that we can do to kind of help offset that, maybe prevent that from happening. But before we go there, I remember one time we were talking and you said that it occurs in the subacute phase. And I read something in one of the articles that we have here to discuss that talked about it may be happening in the acute phase. And so I would like to talk about that. And I'd also like to talk about the difference between the acute, subacute, and chronic phases of stroke. Okay. So, um, yeah, it, I, I would agree. It starts in the acute phase. And the subacute phase is when you're going to unwind out of it, but it does start absolutely in the acute phase. Here's a classic example. They decide, and therapists hate this, especially OTs, obviously. Mm-hmm. You know, the person's in the hospital and they're on an IV because they've had a brain injury and, um, or they've had a stroke. And let's say they have a stroke, they have a clearly strong side, clearly weak side, and they put the IV in the weak side, yeah. making it even harder to move. Mm-hmm. And, you know, therapists can scream and yell about this all they want to, but it's really where they can find a vein. And there's a ton of tubes hanging out of them during the uh, hyperacute phase and the acute phase after, after stroke. So I agree with you. You know, you, the article's right. It, it starts in the acute phase. I think it, it's easily, it's more easily fixed in the subacute phase. Okay. I want to state the name of the article that we're referring to here. And it is called Characterizing Upper Extremity Motor Behavior in the First Week After Stroke. And we will include the information about this article in the show notes talked about two things. The problem is exactly what you said, the failure of using the affected limb, and then the success that a person has from using the, the 
less affected limb is what plays into it. Can you speak a little bit to like what goes on inside of the brain during the acute, subacute, and chronic phases? Okay, so let's go through that. Um, and I have to say, like, there's not a, a ton of stuff in my career that I'm super proud of. But one of the things I am super proud of is the fact that the four phases after a stroke or any kind of brain injury, the four phases are something that I've defined, I think, more than anybody else on the planet. The reason I defined it was because we would publish articles about studies we did. And we would say, uh, we worked with subacute stroke survivors. And then we define it in parentheses in the journal article as seven days to three months. And then the next three months later, we published sometimes the same data, but we would say subacute stroke survivors, seven days to nine months. And the next article was within the first year. So it was annoying to me that nobody had really defined these. So I, I went through an extraordinary effort um, to define them, I think, in the second edition of my book. And it's important for therapists because unless you time things correctly, you can do real damage. So, for instance, if you try to do something very intensive, very acutely, you can make the infarct worse. This is proven both in animal models and in humans. Can so I you gotta, ask a question there? Yes, ma'am. I need further definition. Very intensive. So what would that look like? So the classic example is constraint-induced, where okay. you force use of the affected side. And that's always where the debate ends up falling because okay. people want to do really intensive stuff. And so they want to tie up the weaker arm and force use of the affected side yeah. of the this uh, weaker arm. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. So, so let me give you the four phases after a brain injury. Okay. This would encompass any kind of brain injury. And I know you wanted to define acquired brain injury and, and stroke and, and uh, maybe hemorrhagic stroke. Acquired brain injury is where anything mechanical comes in and hits your brain. It could be a baseball bat. It could be a gunshot wound. It could be a, when your head is bounced around in a car. It could also be the mechanical thing on the inside. For instance, a thrombus that blocks an artery that leads to the brain or in the brain so that there's an occlusion and that portion of the brain doesn't get enough blood or a hemorrhagic stroke where the blood vessel bursts open, throws blood all over the way past the blood-brain barrier and ends up killing neurons. Um, it's that mechanical kind of thing. So not to be confused with something like Alzheimer's, where there's this chemical cascade um, that kills uh, neurons over time, or Parkinson's where there's a lack of dopamine because the substantia nigra isn't doing the right thing. It's, it's a mechanical thing that happened to the brain. So for all those mechanical ones, we're going to call them acquired brain injury. Those are brain injury that you acquired. It's that simple. So in those kinds of brain injuries, there's four phases, hyperacute, acute, subacute, and chronic. So hyperacute is from the first symptom. Now, if you get hit in the head with a baseball bat, you pretty much know when that first symptom was. You know, there was probably a bystander. Or, you know, a police report, if you're in a car accident, you know when it is. In stroke, it's quite difficult. And as you know, as a clinician, it's a big problem in stroke because the faster you get to the hospital, the more chance that you have for treatments like tissue plasminogen activator that 
um, make this lessen the symptoms. But it's from the first symptom through the first six hours. In t- the, the main thing is getting to the hospital. That's all on your to-do list. If you get hit in the head with a baseball bat or you have a car accident where you, you, know, you black out and you had a brain injury or you have a stroke, get to the hospital. That's all the hyperacute phase is about. Once you get there, they're going to try to medically stabilize you and it, it gets into a discussion that's way over my pay grade. That sounds like a separate episode. Yeah, yeah, that would be a good one. Mm-hmm. You know, the big news in stroke is tissue plasminogen activator, which is a clot-busting drug that's way underused. So get to the hospital. That's the point. Acute is the first seven days. Now, both of those periods, obviously, from the first symptom through the first seven days, this is a rough time in this person's life. You know? It is. Yeah, I mean, you've, you've treated these people. So, yes. you know, there's tubes hanging out. And look, they're just not ready for rehab as we know it. Um, There's going to be some range of motion. You know more about the evaluation process than I do, but it's going to be that kind of thing that happens in in the first few days. Now, I should add as a caveat, there's an old joke about brain injury. If you've seen one brain injury, you've seen one brain injury. Exactly. (laughs) They're all going to be different. So I can say first, uh, you know, the uh, the first seven days, but it may be two days, right. and it may be three weeks. So anyway, hyperacute from the first symptom through the first six hours, acute the first seven days generally. Subacute is broadly thought to be seven days to three months, but it could be six months. It could be nine months. OTs always make a big deal about do not try to predict the hand in a stroke. Uh, until about a year out. Do you agree with that? I just try not to make any predictions because anytime, if you say that out loud, it's going to affect a person's recovery. I'm, I'm a firm believer in the words that we speak, the thoughts that we think play an important role in our lives. And so I don't believe in making predictions. Yeah. And as a clinician, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy because mm-hmm. what they hear is the expert said, I'm not getting any yeah. better. So yeah, you're probably better off not making those kinds of predictions. Yes. So anyway, subacute seven days to three months, the brain at this point is just in a huge state of flux. Um, after a brain injury, you have a portion that's dead. It's called the core. Imagine it uh, just for to imagine it about the size of a ping pong ball. Now it may not be that big. It may be bigger, but let's just say it's a ping pong ball. Then there's an area around that called the penumbra. It's the area that is affected by the brain injury, but it's not dead. The core, the ping pong ball that dies is not coming back. In fact, in the brain, it cavitates and fills with cerebral spinal fluid. If you come back in maybe 500 years, they'll have figured that one out, but it's not coming back. Not even stem cell researchers are interested in that area. What everybody's interested in is the area that surrounds that area. So let's say it's a baseball size. So you have a ping pong ball inside a baseball. Okay. The the baseball, that does come back. And that's where learned non-use really digs its hideous claws into the brain Mm. because as it's coming back, Nobody wants to use it. The person with a brain injury doesn't want to use it because 
it, they're failing all the time. Right. And the therapists often are under such immense pressure to get the person safe and functional and out the door that they focus on the good side. It's called compensatory movement. You do it in OT, we do it in PT. Well, let me give you an example in the lower extremity of how we kind of screw this thing up. And then maybe you can give us one in the upper extremity. So here's a good example. The person after the brain injury has one side that's weak and one side that's relatively strong. And um, on the weak side, they have what's called drop foot, which is that they don't have enough strength to lift the foot at the ankle. Now, typically the way that therapists deal with this is something called an AFO, ankle foot orthosis, that holds the ankle in a neutral position so that they can swing the, the leg through. But even before the AFO shows up, there's such a fear of falling that they'll tie up the ankle in an ACE bandage to keep it into that lifted position so that they can swing their foot through. And so now begins the process of learn non-use. So when you say fear of falling, are you talking about the practitioner fear that the person's going to fall? You know, if you work in any environment in healthcare, as you well know, falls are the biggest bugaboo. Well, they really are. Yeah. I mean, people yeah. can die from a fall. So, they can. yeah. So, yeah. yeah, of course, the therapist is thinking, okay. let's just get that foot up so this person can start to walk because that's important too. It is. But, but as that portion of the brain starts to come back, nobody notices it because they, the, the ankle's tied up or there's a big mm. orthosis on it. What about an example in the upper extremity of learn non use? Well, one of the first examples I can think of is working on upper and lower body dressing. People have to get dressed. It's one of the things that they want to do oftentimes. And so teaching them hemi dressing techniques, which really encourages using the good arm to move the affected arm and placing it into a shirt sleeve. And I think another thing that comes into play with that is the time factor, like you mentioned before. We know we have limited time. We have to see this person for you know, 30 minutes, 40 minutes, an hour, however long that is. We have to move through a treatment session. We have to try to get them as independent as possible in this limited amount of time that we have. And so giving the person the opportunity to use a limb and take their time doing that, I mean, that could take an entire treatment session. And so I think that part of it is the therapist's fault. Not intentional, but it's definitely something that we do on the compensatory end of things. Yeah, and the other factor is that the person with the brain injury wants to go home. They sure do. So they often are okay with the little tricks and compensatory movements that you have to do to get them safe and functional and out the door. But that's not what the brain really wants. You have, imagine you have a ping pong ball and that's gone, but then you have a baseball size in, in one hemisphere of your brain and it's coming back and then it's not used. Mm-hmm. And that's the problem. Part of this is managed care. Part of this is honestly is therapists. Um, Part of it is the survivor who wants to get back. Um, part of it are realities of you know not wanting people to get hurt. Mm-hmm. There's a bunch of other stuff that's going on there. Um, 
But here's the downside, and you hit on it before. That baseball, if it's not used as it comes back, it tends to sit there for the rest of their life doing nothing. And what happens is those neurons go through a process. I think I mentioned before, it's called pruning of the dendritic arbor. The number of dendrites shrinks uh, down to a very nominal amount. The neurons don't die. They just don't communicate with each other. And this happens. It's weird. When you see a movement, it has to be captured within the first 48 hours of it coming back after a brain injury. If it's not, there's this pruning process. Now, why is the brain in such a mad rush to prune dendrites? I mean, why not just leave them there for the rest of the person's life? And then if he wants to go back and use them later, why not? Well, because (laughs) that's the brain talking, I think, or I don't know who that was. And so what happens is um, the brain uses so many, so much O2. (laughs) I'll fix that in the mix. So much oxygen. Uh, so much um, uh, glucose, and it also produces a tremendous amount of metabolites, waste products. So it's kind of like having a room in your house and maybe you're an empty nester and your kid like lives in that room and then they're away at college. Well, you're not going to air condition that room. It's just a lot of wasted energy. So the brain shuts it down. Unfortunately, that's the thing about learning on use is that it then lies fallow for the rest of that person's life. The neurons are still good. The glial cells are still good. The vasculature, it's got blood vessels running through it. I mean, the the vasculature does prune away as well eventually, but it's got everything it needs. And uh, so anyway, just to get back to the four phases of brain injury, sorry. We got hijacked. This is great. This is so good. I don't know what happened. So hyperacute, first symptom through the first six hours, acute the first seven days, subacute seven days to three months, but it could be six months, nine months, it could be a year. Um, and then the chronic phase is from that three month or that six month or nine month through the rest of their life. So the subacute phase becomes this ginormously important phase. Now, most people make most recovery during the subacute phase. And one of it is that this penumbra, this, the baseball is coming back online. So they get kind of a free ride. Once that free ride is over, when all those neurons are back, that's the dreaded plateau. And the dreaded plateau is just when they're not visibly getting better day to day. Okay. So a couple things that I want to talk about. During that time, when everything's coming back online, is that when spontaneous recovery will occur? Exactly. Does, does therapy help that? Yes. Okay. And we know this in animal models and in human models. If you take therapy away from them during that subacute phase when that baseball is coming back, the penumbra, mm-hmm. um, they don't do as well. So that's good news, actually. For, You're doing something right. For therapists and the survivor. Another thing that I want to speak to a little bit more, if we could, is that phase when you can do too much and helping therapists work their way through that. Because I just gave a presentation on mirror therapy, and that was a question that came up quite often. You know, how do you know? Is it too much? So can we talk about that a little bit? Yeah. 
So it's a great question. And it's one that I think a lot of people don't understand. There was an article that came out of Johns Hopkins recently where uh, an MD-PhD, and I won't mention his name because I'm sure he won't agree with anything I have to say in the next couple of sentences. Just leave him out of it then. Yes. So he did did a bunch of interviews and it was really startling information. He said that you should be early and intensive with people that have had brain injury. Hmm. The more early stuff that you do that's intensive, the better their recovery. Now, what he didn't mention was that it was a hypothesis based on uh, studies in rodents, specifically mice. And what they did in this study is nothing like humans. Okay, so first of all, they trained the mice to do a a grasping task. And usually the way they do this is they'll have a piece of plexiglass with food on the other side in a small hole. So the mouse has to stick his little tiny mouse paw in there and grab one little piece of Cheerio and stuff it in his little mouse mouth. And um, so they trained him on what to do, right? Then they gave him a stroke. And usually what they do is drill a little hole through their, they put them under first. Um, they drill a hole through their skull. They punch through the meninges, the big, big, uh, thick leather, and leather covering over the brain. And then they inject a, um, something that kills a portion of the brain. So they give them a stroke, basically. And they'll have 50 mice, and they'll give them all exactly the same, the same stroke, basically, the same brain injury. It's actually not a stroke because there's no occlusion there, but, but it's a brain injury. Okay. So now you've got 50 mice. Now, what they didn't mention, and I had to go into the research to find this out, was that they used mice that were, um, I think they were like 50 days old and 50 to 70 days old, and they lived to about a year old. So these were young mice okay. that had no comorbidities. They had, didn't have a you know, hip replacement. They didn't have diabetes. They didn't have the millions of things that we always see. They also weren't elderly mice. I mean, we usually see stroke in people that are older. These were young, healthy mice that they trained on a task of grasping with one limb. And, uh, and then after the stroke, they constrained their strong side and forced them to feed with that, that limb. And, you know, they can do things to mice that they can't do to humans, like make them really hungry. So they really want to stick their little hand through the little plexiglass thing. I mean, it was, and out of this, he came up with this idea that he should tell the world that humans should be treated this way. It's incorrect. And we know, and we've known for a very long time that if you do very intensive stuff too soon, you can make the infarct worse. You can make the brain injury worse. And we've seen this in animal and in human models. So when should they get intensive? Subacute. Okay. When the penumbra is starting to get back online, how will they know that they're subacute? spontaneous recovery. So spontaneous recovery, well, do you want to explain, like in the upper extremity, can you give me an example of of spontaneous recovery that might show up? Well, it's very simple. One day, the limb barely works, and the next day, there's a significant larger amount of movement in all of the joints oftentimes. And the other thing, too, is I noticed that 
immediately following stroke, people tend to be very sleepy and they need that time to rest. And then as they progress more towards that subacute phase, they start to wake up more, they become more of themselves again, and, and they're, they're ready to work. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the subacute phase is when all the neurons of the penumbra are starting to come back online. That's why you see things like all of a sudden the limb works. Yeah. Um, so when you start to see that, that means it's time to go. Okay. Now, I'm not saying you would want to then do seven hours of constraint-induced therapy on the day that they show a little bit of shoulder shrug or something. Mm. I'm saying, you know, you're not going to go to zero to 60 that first day, but that's when you got to start to push. Because remember, on the back end of that, the back end of the subacute period is the entire penumbra is back online. What you're trying to do during the subacute phase, survivors and caregivers are trying to help with this, and, and of course, clinicians, you're trying to get that portion of the brain that for the last 65 years has moved that arm and the leg to go back to moving that arm and the leg as much as you can. I call it riding the wave of natural recovery. The, um, they call it spontaneous or natural recovery. And you just ride that wave. If they show you shoulder shrug, do shoulder shrugging. It's not functional, but you got to capture it because if you don't capture it, you have about 48 hours okay. and then it starts to go through this pruning process. Hmm. All the stuff you don't learn in OT school. Yeah. <laughs> That's why I made a living for, you know, whatever it was from uh, 2004 till COVID, um, mm. you know, doing these talks because yeah, it's, it's not, it's not explained to us very well. Well, I, there's another part to that too, Pete. Yes, ma'am. Because I don't want all of the instructors out there to be really angry at me. <laughs> Students can only learn what they can learn. Like you can only take in so much information. And sometimes more of the, this stuff becomes more meaningful the longer you've been working. <laughs> uh, well, that's true. So maybe we need to dose it right. We're going to hit them in mid-career. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And I, and I teach too. And look, I have experiences where I have, I'll tell you a quick story. When I first got my job as an adjunct at this PTA program, two of the main professors showed up at my talk. Yep. It was oh, just a God. random thing where I happened to be doing a talk around the corner from where I work. Um, it happened like once every two years, I would come to this area and they show up and I was like, oh no, I can't breathe. Cause I'm going to tell them a lot of stuff that they may not agree with, but I'm still working there. So That's I great guess news. I guess it's okay. So hyperacute, acute, subacute, and chronic, those are the four phases. The okay. way that you tell it's time to start is look for subacute spontaneous recovery. And then once they plateau after that, you're not waiting for this easy ride of the brain coming back online. It's all neuroplastic change after that. You've got to borrow from some other part of the brain that's still intact. And so then it becomes real learning. And that's the plateau. Now, that doesn't mean you're not going to have other plateaus after that. And you're going to keep stepping up the way an athlete or a musician would, where it's not a big thing. I wasn't walking than I was. I wasn't dressing than I was. It's more subtle stuff. That sounds like a whole conversation. It, the, it just, it tentacles out into a million different conversations. Mm -hmm. Well, does. maybe not a million. I don't think I'd keep a million in my head, but at least 10 good ones. Mm -hmm. 
So there's a couple of other things I want to speak to. If we could talk a little bit about proprioception. I find that students have a hard time. They It's like one of those topics that or concepts that it, it's there and then it kind of goes away and then it's there and it goes away. And a lot of times I hear students t- speak about proprioception as if it's something that a, a person does on purpose, whereas it's more an underlying component. Can you speak to that a little bit? Sure. So first of all, proprioception is the ability to know where the limb is in space or your whole body is in space. It could be your neck or your head. Um, and it is often affected by brain injury. Um, here's the good news. It can be retrained the same way that you would retrain movement, which is a lot of repetitive, challenging, meaningful practice. So um, he, here's a test. If you're a clinician or if you're a caregiver that you can give to somebody who um, you suspect might not have a good sense of where their body is in space, take their weaker limb and put it in some position. Right now, I'm holding my hand in palm up, fingers open, elbow extended, and you can hold them in that position. Now, that's on the, the, uh, the weaker side. So the caregiver's holding them. Before they see that, ask them to close their eyes. You hold them in that position, and then try to get them to do the same thing with their stronger side, Okay. And what you often get is one side does one thing and the other side does something completely different. And that'll give you a good indication of whether or not they have problems with proprioception. The other thing that you can do is there is a correlation between tactile sensation and proprioception. So you can brush both forearms. Does this feel like that? Do they feel similar? Usually, if they don't have tactile, they're going to have poor proprioception. So... Um, I don't know if I answered your question, but that's you did. proprioception in a nutshell. You did. Can we circle back around to how that feeds into learned non-use? That's where you're going with this. Yeah. Now I see. Yes. I mean, look, movement is the yin and sensation of that movement is the yang. Uh, they don't work. Either of them don't work in in isolation. So movement without sensation is going to be uncoordinated and dangerous. Um, Sensation without movement doesn't help because there's no movement to feel. Mm -hmm. The brain and the spinal cord and the muscles are all in this grand conversation constantly, um, keeping everything relaxed and flexed and everything that it needs to do to protect the muscle, but also to move well. Mm-hmm. So, um, imagine if you can't feel where that weaker limb is in space, you're much less likely to move it for all the reasons that we mentioned with regard to learn non-use. So, that's, that's quite a bit right there. I want to add something else to the mix. I want to talk about neglect or inattention because if you add that into the mix, now that's just one more thing that is getting in the way of recovery. There's this like trifecta or quadfecta, whatever you call it. So one thing is called hemianopsia. Mm, that's and another important thing to talk yeah, about. Yeah. So what we're talking about here, this whole episode is about learn on use, right? So imagine if you couldn't see your weaker side, 
um, that you had a visual field cut where that side was just taken out. Um, yeah. And so that's, that lends itself to learn non-use. Now imagine you can't feel it. That lends itself to Now imagine you can't move it. That lends itself to learn non-use. And then unilateral neglect is this bizarre thing that happens in the brain sometimes where the person not only can't see that part of the world, that half of the world, they don't even know it exists. And it'll get crazy. Like an OT will put down a plate of food and they'll only eat on the stronger side. They'll only like, like it was cut down the middle. The plate was cut down on all the mashed potatoes. It could be on both sides of the plate. They'll only eat that one side. The classic uh, test for this is you have them draw a faced clock with, you know, 12 hours, one through 12, and they'll do one through 12 only on the strong side. The clock test, I think, right? You've probably done this test. Yes, I have done that test. Yes. And I don't want people to think that you don't have to have a visual field cut to have neglect or inattention. So that is a vision problem, whereas the neglect or inattention is a perception problem. You can have both. Yes. So there are, there are multiple factors at play in terms of learned non-use. So we've given folks a lot of bad news. What kind of good news do we have? What about the treatments? Should we briefly go over those? I think we should. Okay. Now, let me get back to something you said about mirror therapy. So there was some concern because that would be a treatment for unilateral neglect. It would be Mm. for um, learn non-use. But there was some concern among some people that you were talking to that if they did mirror therapy, they might be doing too much too soon kind of a deal. But see, mirror therapy is an interesting one because in the short term, you're the expert, but my understanding is you can start it even before they can use the uh, affected side. So it wouldn't be as challenging as trying to move that weaker side, which is can be a real psychic, like existential angst kind of thing because they don't have any control over it. Whereas with mirror therapy, it's a little bit more gentle because you're using the stronger side. What do you think about that? I have similar thoughts about that. Um, I, I love it for treating neglect. And one of the things with mirror therapy is I think it's, it's challenging to use in the acute care setting. So you would have to have a special circumstance of somebody who's going to help that person follow through with it, set them up. You know, it depends on how the acute care situation is organized. Um, but I think that it's it's such a useful intervention because it it encourages that person to look towards the affected side. They don't have to use the affected limb, and they can get spontaneous movement from using that, but if it fires all of the neurons and mirror therapy reorganizes the brain. So it will help those dormant areas to fire. It will help suppress some of those overactive areas. And um, 
just overall, it helps the brain to reorganize. And I know people who have had strokes, even in this, even if they don't have cognitive deficits, and even in the chronic phase, they have reported to me that their thinking is not the same. It, it feels slower. It feels more exhausting. Like they get tired faster. So anything that we can do to help somebody's brain reorganize itself is going to help them in many ways. So for sure, it will help with cognition as well. Can you just explain um, to all of us a typical setup with mirror therapy? It's just like, where's the mirror? Is it like up or down? Or what do you do with that? And, <laughs> and where's the good or I'm going to keep saying good and bad side. Uh, it's just a nomenclature thing. It yes. makes it quick. But um, where does the weaker side go? Where, what are you looking at? Where's the stronger side go? I'm confused. So mirror therapy, super simple. You set up, I, I would say, put, put the mirror on a table, set the person in a chair facing the table, have the mirror facing perpendicular to the, the body about midline. So it's like bisecting them. It's bisecting them, yes. Right, okay. And the reflective side of the mirror is going to face the less affected limb or the non-affected limb, as some people like to say. The affected limb goes behind the mirror. And then all you have to do is have some activities and exercises for the person to engage in. And while they're, they do those with their non-affected limb, while they're looking in the mirror. So the, the key part here is that they keep their eyes on the image in the mirror. And the mirror creates that illusion that tricks the brain into believing that the affected limb is moving normally. All kinds of good stuff that happens inside the brain that's worth a continuing education course or a lecture. <laughs> or or um, good, a good training program? Yeah. Do you know of any good pra- training programs? Well, I know. And now we're waiting for my sponsor. <laughs> Why, Pete, thank you for asking. Yes, I do. In fact, I have created a mirror therapy program along with a, a training protocol for therapists to use, and they can find that at my website, creativeconceptsinoccupationaltherapy.com or creativeconceptsot.com. I bet that's going to go in the show notes as well. There's going to be links for that as well. Yes, we can put that right in there. Okay. Can I add a couple things to mirror therapy? Please. The first is the guy who came up with it is one of my favorite neuroscientists in the world. Say his name. V.S. Ramachandran. Love his name. Ramachandran. He's this great <laughs> Indian bloke, and he's got that British Urdu accent, and he rolls his R's. He talks about the great, incredible neuroplastic beast at the top of your shoulders. And I, I, I sounded Irish there. I don't know what happened. That was there. good. Yeah. That was my Urdu accent. <laughs> but I'm a huge fan of this guy. I mean, you know, when it comes to neuroscientists, if they had, you know how they have baseball cards and like soccer oh. cards. And I would have, I would, I would like Ed Taub's Edward Taub's rookie card would be worth like a fortune as far as yeah. I'm concerned. So VS Ramachandran developed it for phantom limb pain, right? So you would look mm-hmm. at the intact limb in the mirror, um, the reflection of the intact limb, making it look like the residual limb, the limb that was cut off. And for phantom limb pain, that would quell, quell the pain. And, and then he brought it into hemiparesis and it's, I keep looking at the, 
the meta-analyses on this and it seems to work. Yeah. And the weird thing about it, and you touched on this, is that, okay, let's say I, my weak side is my left side. Okay, in the mirror, I'm looking at the reflection of the right side looking like the left side's moving perfectly well. Yes. Now, it's kind of weird the way the brain is set up. When you first learn this in school, you're just so pissed off because you swear that your professors are just lying to you. So the left side of the brain controls the right side of the body and the right side of the brain controls the left side of the body. I mean, like you don't have enough problems in life. Yeah. So it crosses over. So I'm looking at my intact right leg in the mirror and it looks like the left, the, the left leg is moving perfectly well. Mm-hmm. Now, my right leg is controlled by the left side of my brain, but what lights up in, in mirror therapy, because I'm concentrating on the image in the mirror, is the other side of the brain, the side of the brain that controls the weaker side. That's How what's weird that, about it. I know. It's so cool. It drives cortical change exactly where you want it. And you can start it even before the person can move. So there's some good news for, mm-hmm. for people that have brain injury. Since we're talking about famous people and neuroscientists trading cards. (laughs) We're going to start a business. We are. Wait for the swag, people. (laughs) Um, We should do it. I know. There's a great documentary, The Brain That Changes Itself, and that research is shown in there. And he talks about the homunculus. And I just think for students, it can help them, A, become fascinated with possibilities and the things that people are doing in the research world, but it can help you understand a little bit more about how the brain works and just kind of see this in action. It helps tie concepts together. Yeah. So Norman Dorge's book, The Brain That Changes Its Itself. Um, yeah, it was turned into a movie. Mm-hmm. There was a great book that came out two or three years earlier something neuroplasticity is by Jeffrey Schwartz, a psychiatrist that said exactly the same thing that the brain that changes itself said, it just said it two years earlier. (laughs) So, but that's fine because Deutsch did a good job of like fleshing it out a little bit more. It was, it was overall better written, I would say. Um, But yeah, you're right. It's a great entree into neuroscience. That book is a great entree into it. And the other thing is that some really good resources with regard to introducing people to the neuroscience here. Look, the brain is command and control. It controls everything. It controls everything. And I know we can't see it. Clinicians can't measure it. They don't know what's going on in it. In clinical research, we have functional magnetic resonance imaging and we have transcranial magnetic stimulation. We got all these things that we can measure, but it's frustrating to have the command and control thing. something you can't see. Mm-hmm. So, but if you want an entree into neuroscience, I'm glad you brought this up. Norman Dorge's book, Norman, the Brain That Changes Itself movie, um, mm-hmm. that's, that's great. The other thing is uh, one of my favorite podcasts. It was a very early podcast. It's called The Brain Science Podcast by Ginger Campbell, who's oh, an yeah. MD. She always interviews people that are sort of on the cusp of winning the Nobel, it seems like, or people that worked with people that won the Nobel. And, and these people just... Like we'll talk for an hour and a half about, you know, a synapse. Now that doesn't sound very interesting to a lot of people, but it's incredibly important. So yeah, the brain that changes itself and uh, the podcast 
um, Ginger Campbell's podcast, which is called, I just said it. The Brain uh, Science. The Brain Science Podcast. podcast. Like, I've lost my brain. It happens sometimes when you're talking. Yes. There's one more thing about mirror therapy that I want to talk about. Those movement-related cortical potentials that they found out happen in brain research that occur with um, object-directed activity. So when you're reaching for something, if there's an intention there, the brain is firing before movement occurs, which brings in the visualization piece. So if you're thinking about making that movement, like all of the planning that occurs before you actually move to make the movement, there's brain activity for that. So visualization is also often associated with mirror therapy. And, you know, I know we're coming to the end of this mm-hmm. podcast, um, but there's a bunch of other things that in the future we will talk mm-hmm. about to help overcome learn non-use. We will go in further, I would imagine, into mirror therapy, but there's bilateral arm training and bilateral yeah. leg training where the good side of the brain informs the bad side what to do and Please excuse my use of good and bad. It's not the relative importance of the limb. It's just a shorthand for this stuff. Mental imagery, which you touched on. Action observation, which is another thing that you can do to keep learn on use at bay even before you can move. Um, And then, of course, there's the granddaddy of them all, constraint-induced therapy and forced use. I wonder if we should leave it there. That sounds like a great place to end. Well, thanks. I appreciate it. And this is our, the end of our first podcast. So I think we need to like drink like gin or something. I'm game. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. We appreciate your support and would love to hear from you. Ask us questions and share your thoughts by email at nogginsandneurons at gmail.com. That's noggins, the word and, spelled out, neurons at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, please share this podcast with others you think will benefit. Also be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. We'll catch you next time on Noggins and Neurons, Stroke and TBI Recovery Simplified.